0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Draft Class Dropouts Podcast and all things NBA Draft Podcast, hosted by me as well as uh, my two lovely co-hosts, Tim and Garrett. Guys, this is our first episode. We've been planning this one for a minute. How are y'all doing today?
1: Good. How about yourself?
0: You know, I'm doing good. You know, today was, uh, was a good day. Looking forward to this episode. We've had this episode in the works for about a week now, but, you know, I'm excited. Tim, how are you doing, man?
2: Yeah, I'm doing pretty great. Pretty great today. Excited reporting to live
0: started. from the other side of the world. By the way. Wow. So, look at that. Look at <laughs> look at the power of the internet. Talking about the NBA draft from I, I think California to Georgia to New Zealand, love it. Anyways, we have a bunch of topics to get into today, but since this is our first episode of the podcast, you know, I wanted to you know go ahead and introduce ourselves to the audience. You know, there's probably a lot of people listening to this probably do know us, but look, let's give a brief summary about ourselves, so if there's anybody who doesn't know us, they'll get to know us a bit more. Uh, you know what, I'm going I'm to call on somebody first. You know what, Garrett, I, I think the audience wants to hear from you first, so you know what, you have the floor, I want you to introduce yourself, and uh, yeah, go for it.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm Garrett Johnson. Nice, nice to meet everybody who's listening, if you haven't heard of me before. i uh, been on Draft Twitter for a minute. Uh, I've always been kind of like a long-time basketball obsessive, but I used to just do it solo on my own computer with my spreadsheets and my uh, cable subscription. But uh, I recently found Draft Twitter in the last year and a half during the pandemic when you know everybody had way more free time and uh, just became more obsessed with basketball than I even had been before. Uh, I met these two guys and uh, excited to start the pod.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much a good summary of it. Uh, Tim, you know what? I'm calling on you now. You know, you get yourself your introduction. I'm ready. This is the moment you've all been waiting for.
2: I know, I know. So uh, I'm Tim, QK Hoops on Twitter. Uh, On there, I talk a lot about my irrational love for the NBL Uh, A bit too much about Hugo Besson. And yeah, very similar story to to Garrett uh, with the pandemic, just being able to embrace that love for basketball scouting and find some other people to share it with uh, on Twitter. And yeah, that whole community.
0: And uh, I'm Jackson. You know, I uh, I've been I've been doing the NBA draft for a few years now. Uh, a lot of people might know me for my NBA draft takes. You know, sometimes not for them being too good, but you know, I have been doing this for a while. I'm also the host of an Atlanta Hawks podcast called Hawks Talks. And uh, me, Garrett, and Tim, we've been friends for a while. You know, we're into the draft. We're we're well, we've all done some podcasting work. I know we've done some together. I know we've done some uh, on our by ourselves. But we all got the idea. Look, the game's dry. They the, the NBA draft. Podcast podcast he needs some new content you know what it's it we're stepping up we're coming to the plate uh i do know one thing that i don't think either three of us have mentioned we do we do all you know contribute to a website for content that's the women.com. i know uh tim and garrett they personally play much bigger roles than me you know they do they do a lot more over there but just wanted to get that out there you know <laughs> link in the description to that if you want to go check out some stuff but anyways look let's go ahead and get the people what they came for they came to hear from us they came for us to introduce ourselves but look Everybody wants to know about the NBA draft class of 2022. So first of all, you know, what? let's do a bit of a breakdown. Now I want everybody's, you know, discourse and opinion and details about it. You know, let's do a breakdown of the glass, like the, like the keys about it. What are the things that, you know, you look at this class and you identify the most?
1: Yeah, well, I'll start. I I think the biggest thing that uh, is really kind of an overall theme for this year versus others is there have been a lot of guys who haven't, really been the player that people expected them to be uh much more so than other years you know there's always a couple guys who like i don't know don't don't show the same skill set that you expected them to show but this year i i could count probably double digit guys so you just are, are rethinking this year versus what you saw in high school and uh and in particular the point guards haven't necessarily been what we would hope for even without like incredibly high expectations for this year's point guard class just like a lot of guys ending up in the second round or, or talking about them going back to school when they see Mike surefire first one-year players. So I, I think for me, like that, the biggest thing about this class is just kind of learning to reframe what, what this draft is versus last year that was kind of like outlier good and uh, start trying to find value here in the late first, early second, rather than there being
2: talent all the way through the draft.
0: Tim, what about you? I'm it's curious to know what you think about this class.
2: I completely agree on those observations about the, the lack of uh, point guards, especially with first-round grades. Uh, there's a decent amount of, of big men, which I think we'll discuss soon, uh, sitting in the the mid-first, late-first. And uh, also, it's it's really interesting, the jump that a lot of players have made between their freshman and sophomore seasons. We've got guys like Jaden Ivey, Benedict Matherin. Uh, Johnny Davis, Keegan Murray, and I think the list goes goes on. And that's definitely a big theme of this year's draft class that we don't usually get, especially in terms of uh, lottery.
0: I think the thing I identify with this draft class the most is that there, there seems to be like towards the top of the draft, you know, you have your guys, you have your Paulo Boncaro's, you have your Chet Holmgreen's, you know, your, your Jaden and Ivy's and all that. The thing I, d- I identify with the most is like this class in the first round. I see like a bunch of death. Like I see a bunch of guys in the first round, you know, early second round who I think are going to be contributors in the NBA to come. You know, I think this, I don't think this class has like a high as a ceiling. It's like we talk about 2018 with Luca, Trey and Aiton or, you know, before that, uh, what cl- oh gosh, uh, whatever. You know, previous class, you know, the hell that star talent towards the top. This one, I identify as something like you have a few guys at the top. Maybe they break into that all star tier. You know, maybe they're a bit better than that. But this class does have like some good depth to it. There's tons of guys in this class that I think will, you know, be able to play, you know, some role in the NBA. I'm not saying they're going to be like starting on a playoff caliber team or anything. I'm not saying they're a top five o- option and on a ring team. But I-, I do think there's a lot of talent in this class. I think there's a lot, a lot of reasons to be excited about this class beyond just you know. You know, the top of the class, I mean, those are the guys who always get the most attention just because that's how things go. But I mean, there's a lot of like sleepers in the class. There's a, there's a lot of guys who I think are going to pop in the NBA whenever they have that chance to showcase their abilities outside of, you know, college or if they're in an international ball.
2: I'm already yeah. on top of that. Uh, I feel like, depending on withdrawals, of course, there could be a lot of ups, upside swings in the, the late first, even late second this year. Uh, which could be really exciting and challenge uh, our view as members of the esteemed draft Twitter community on um, how do we value these uh, raw upside swing type prospects compared to the immediate contributors you're talking about
1: yeah i think it's a mistake sometimes when people think that a draft class is is weaker than another one that that means there isn't value to be found later i think the bigger thing is like when we're talking about guys who were maybe underwhelmed this year is that there might be kind of hidden talent now that these guys have fallen in favor and fallen in draft placement that they're still going to have some guys who re- return to what their expectations have been in high school or even exceed them and you always have guys who play way above their draft expectations um once they get to the league so when you look at this class it's not about like you know oh i have to trade up to get any value here there's stuff to be found in the late first early second just expect maybe more misses than previous years
0: uh, Garrett, I know you mentioned whenever I asked you for a bit of a breakdown about the class, like the main thing you identify, you know, you talked about the point guards. And uh, one thing I wanted to talk about was one thing about this class that I noticed is you look at like the center crop, and I think there's a ton of like guys, there's a ton of centers in the class, man, who I think, you know, they're going to be able to be contributing centers. Like I think these guys are, you know, starters before they're off of that rookie deal. I'm talking about, you know, obviously Chet Holmgren. Come on now. I mean there's a reason why he's at the top of the class. But you also have, you know, uh Jalen Duran, you have uh Christian Coloco. It's like you look at these guys, the center class is nice. You also have Walker Kessler. I know I'm not personally as high on him as some people are, but like these are all guys who realistically are like starting at center before, you know, they're off of that rookie contractor. They're playing a really big role on a team, you know, coming off the bench, possibly like a sixth, seventh man, whatever and that doesn't even begin to touch on guys like oscar chwebe ismail Kamagate, and like you know some more international guys i know there's a few more that i'm probably missing but look those guys that's one thing I identified in the classes like there's tons of like at the center position i think there's going to be a ton of guys who break through and play big roles on nba teams
1: yeah i mean i i think that uh conversation that we've had in the past uh is about how you know i think back when there was uh that really terrible period of backup bigs being paid like 15 million 12 million dollars a year and they just begin to say albatross contracts that teams had to get off of it, it became really easy to sign a, a center for cheap on the free agent market and just have that settled and now now that that all those contracts are kind of in the horizon you know in the, in the back seat and um, teams are through that cap sheet hell uh, it, they're having trouble signing those centers for cheap now because every team's approaching it that way so when you look at this class and you see wow there might be like five or six starting nba centers in this class if everything goes right and even if that uh doesn't go right there's like a flood of backup centers coming to the league who i would always consider draftable and even in this class where it's full of centers i still have a like a ton of centers in my top 60 um you just look at that and you're like wow this is the draft where i can really just lock down this position for a long time and and in future drafts when there's maybe more point guards more more wings i can that uh appeal to my team's play style i
2: I can go for that again tim i'm curious where
0: you're at with the centers
2: yeah yeah i feel i feel very similarly uh, in terms of the value of centers and uh I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of guys uh, who I, I can see sticking in the league for quite a while. Even if that's a backup, there's still value value in that. You don't have to draft a guy to be in the top seven of your rotation. If you're if you're picking from you know 45 onwards and are able to get someone who can be on contract throughout their rookie season and contribute in some sort of way, that's a win. And uh, I don't think uh, even even in the early second round, if you can get a guy who's on contract uh, for a you know, four years or longer, that's value. And uh, I think this is a good draft class to get some centres who can live up to that and immediately, or not even immediately come in, but can be guys in a few years uh, on playoff teams uh, contributing in this sort of way
0: yeah that's definitely like one of the main things i identify at this class is like you know garrett talked about the point guards i just brought up the centers but my next thing i want to go to is the nba you know we talk about today's nba we talk about positionless basketball we talk about hey if you're building a team you, you can never have too many wings and i think that's another identifying thing about this class is like there's a good crop there's a good number of you know guys in this class who are wing players who i don't you know i'm gonna say you know some of them, I'm going to be straight up, I don't see these guys ever becoming, you know, all-stars, but I do see them being, it's like solid depth, and it's like, you know, at the end of the day, in the NBA, y- you can never have too many wings. That saying is one something I 100% agree with. You know, you look at guys like uh, Wendell Moore and Trevor Kills who are playing right now, you know, we're recording this as the, as Duke is playing Arkansas, and like, you know, the guys like that, I'm talking like guys who you're probably looking at, like, as, you know, bench playing wings, or like, you know, maybe get a starting spot one day, you know. That's one thing I identify that this class that I really like, because, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, the NBA has shifted more towards wings. So, I mean, this class, like, I brought up the depth earlier, but, like, I look at it again, and I'm like, hey, you got some good wing depth. You know, we're talking about centers, you know, possibly breaking through on the playoff teams, and, you know, know, the point guards, you know, they're, they're not the best. But, look, how do you guys feel about the wings? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, I think the last 2 years have had so many good wings coming into the league. Um I'm almost wondering like if I have to reevaluate where I put wings on my board, like how is the wing the wing position is still just as valuable as it's ever been. But where do I put like these kind of like bench maybe low end starter upside wings on my board when there's so many guys like that coming into the league with just how great the talent is that's entering the league these days. I this draft I just have so it's just full of wings and I have trouble i guess maybe you guys could talk about how many wings you might have in like say your top 45 top 30 but for me i am trying to weigh that position differently knowing that the wing position is so valuable but how many minutes are these guys going to get with so many good guys coming to the league and what is this guy let's, let's say like uh hmm, what's a good one like oh Baji. like uh, unless he's shooting at an incredible high level how does this guy differentiate himself from the other wing crop in, in the NBA right now? And how does he stick on a roster for his rookie contract? Guys like that uh, who just have, they need to have a standout skill to be able to stick.
0: Yeah, 100%. I'm with you on better right? about Abaji, by the way. Just want to throw that out there.
2: Just counted through my big board and 17 of my top 45 are wings or could be considered wings in a way. So it's just
1: under 40%. Yeah, I'd say that's probably about where I'm at. I might even be higher because I still think that I might be uh, placing too many wings in my top 45. Uh, But I think it's pretty similar, yeah. And and last draft was kind of similar to that as well. I'd have to look, but I think it would be a similar percentage
0: yeah no i mean look also i just want to say shout the shot the Tim for the quick maths you know he brought up i think i have 17 on my top 45 just under 40 percent i was like whoa hold on you got the calculator out i mean that was yeah whipped out the
2: calculator pretty quickly there.
0: <laughs> i was not i was not expecting that so props to you about that but yeah i mean this draft obviously you know looking to, you know there's not at the end of the day people gotta realize this there's not like a zion level prospect you know 80 we talk about those guys generational uh well Depends on how you feel about some players, of course. I mean, there's some people that have differing opinions, but look, there's no clear-cut guy like that, which I think makes this draft more interesting. You know, at the top of the draft, there's a there's a lot more discourse than usually is like. There's no clear-cut number one, but that is one thing I want to talk about. Look, we we can't ignore it, people. March Madness is going on. It's been going on for about I guess a week or two now. I want to say uh, one thing about March Madness that always curious me. and, You know, it always always makes me think about it is how much. How much do you guys, all right, I'm curious, March Madness, you know, is the biggest time for a lot of guys. A lot of guys won't play plan a bigger sale again on these college teams. But for prospects, how much do you let their March Madness performance either factor into your p- opinion in a positive way or in a negative way?
1: I like to avoid kind of the negative uh, impressions from the draft, uh, from the tournament uh on my draft opinions particularly if you've already watched a guy throughout the season and have a firm grasp on who they are if you see a poor performance in the tournament unless it's a, a very different picture of that prospect from how you know them i don't think it should be a significant impact of course obviously if you've watched you know five games of a prospect in the regular season then you see a sixth game that's still a sixth of your evaluation right it should be at least so it's not like it shouldn't have any weight but, uh, you know, every every player, ex- every team except for one ends on a loss in the NCAA tournament. And that's generally going to mean that a guy that you like struggled in that game or a guy didn't have exactly the game that he wanted to. So it's kind of tough for me to like, want to leave with a, like, a sour taste in my mouth about some of these prospects. And, and on top of that, you know, I, I just think that the turn- NCAA tournament is, is just a beast of its own in terms of like, the mindset that guys come in with like the pressure that is put on them to perform in this setting and it's just kind of its own unique uh situation that can cause players to maybe look different than how you're used to seeing them especially this year with the number of upsets we had it's been just kind of crazy
2: i want to answer this by talking about dante di uh because of course he had a wicked final college game against Michigan, and uh, I think the way to look at uh, the successes and failures of prospects in March Madness is to not use it to build your evaluation off of, but for someone like, like Dante, you watch the game he had, and what that did for me personally was it made me think maybe I'm missing something here, maybe I need to go back and relook at some of his games earlier in the season and see if I was missing something. So instead of taking his performance and going, hey, he's really good. Oh oh my God, I need to raise him on my board. It's uh, then look at his previous performances and see if it lines up with what you've seen in the past or something else pops out that you hadn't known was there before. That's kind of my philosophy on uh, March Madness in terms of evaluating prospects.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I I agree. I I think that... In general, if you're seeing a prospect for the first time in the tournament, I really wouldn't want to form my entire opinion on that prospect around the game that I saw. Um, and in particular, also, if you see an outlier performance, you know, it's usually when you watch a prospect, you don't want to watch only their best games. You want to see them uh, in different uh, circumstances, how they deal with adversity, how they how they look when they're at their best, and how they look just kind of, you know, on a day where they're just within the offense. So, you know, I, I think that outlier performances too often cloud people's judgment on the on the draft. You look at, like, this year where Jabari Smith had a horrible game just shooting-wise uh, on his last game of the tournament, but that doesn't really match up with the rest of the year. But it also, his concerns are the same in that game as they are throughout the year. So... You shouldn't really have a more severe feeling about that, I think, based off of seeing one game where he his struggles really sh- sh- had shown. But at the same time, you just kind of nod to yourself, okay, I've seen that before, I'm seeing it again. Uh, what, do I, what do I get out of this?
0: One thing I kind of want to ask both of you... Rudy. Is that uh like, we kind of, we kind of talked about how much, like, you let a negative opinion, like a negative game, like, oh, yeah, like, you kind of have to, like, let it be, like, you have to realize, you know, guys have bad games, it happens, you know, just because it's a tournament doesn't mean that guys can't have bad games, one thing I want to ask you is, like, if a guy has, like, this was one thing I always have issues with, if a guy has a 40-point game in, like, the Sweet 16, I'm caring a lot more about that than, like, a 40-point game back in, like, early January, You know, that's just who I am, but I want to know, are y'all like that, or is, is it go both ways for you? I know, Garrett, you talked about how, like, you don't let the negatives, you know, you don't, you don't walk away with a sour taste in your mouth. I'm just curious, like, a positive, you know, it's hard for me to, like, not look past the positivity of, like, a really good and a really highlighting performance in March
2: i was about to say the only strong observation i will take away from a march madness performance is how they look athletically compared to more nba caliber athletes which happens for some prospects they can go most of the season uh not playing a huge amount of NBA athletes and then they come into come into the tournament and suddenly uh playing way higher caliber competition so if a a player comes out there and is not looking up to par athletically i think it's completely valid to take that into consideration uh based on what they look like in the tournament but in terms of performances uh and scoring outputs i don't care for it too much because for, for the most part there shouldn't be a large change in the way they're getting their shots and you know, players go through hot streaks and and cold streaks. So, of course, it's more eye opening because of the time of year. But I think in the grand scheme of evaluating a player, it doesn't mean too much to me, at least. Yeah, I think you like look at Jade Nivey, this tournament and his last two games.
1: First against Texas and then against St. Peter's. Uh, you look at like Texas, where they're all their bigs were in foul trouble the entire game. So when it comes down to the late second half, and Jaden Ivey wants to take over, and he wants to get to the rim. He's not getting the same contests that he does throughout the year, and he also has to, has had to deal with like Big Ten huge seven foot bigs the whole year. When he's going to the rim, and now Texas has like six eight, six nine bigs, and he's just getting to the rim at will and kind of taking over the game. But it's the same looks that he's been doing getting all year. It's just that he's being more successful because he's playing a different defense. Then you look at St. Peter's, you know, also don't have size, but. This time around, they're collapsing the paint so hard every time that he drives that he can't get there and he's getting flustered and having troubles. And then he has, in my opinion, maybe one of his bottom three games of the year against St. Peter's. And, uh, you know, if you take one of those two games and just kind of form your own whole opinion around it, you're going to come away with, you know, I saw Ivy number one takes that I had not seen for a while after his Texas game, and suddenly there's people immediately after the St. Peter's game saying, should I move him down to five, six? Like, it, this really should not be the way that you approach things where you're just kind of sliding guys up and down your board off of one game but if it co- if a game causes you to co- be introspective and kind of re-review how you think about a prospect that's a positive as long as it's leading you to the best conclusion about what their game is
0: Jaden Ivey is like a super interesting case to me because you, you I know you mentioned the game against Saint Peter's. I think it was going to be hard for a lot of people, and like you know, the, you know, I would consider all three of us. I mean, even you guys, you two guys, more. I know y'all are like way more into the entrenched into the draft than me. Look, for more casual people about the draft, a lot of people are going to look at you know that Purdue team and specifically Jaden Ivey Jaden Ivy, because he's at the top of you know the class. They're going to say, hey, look. He has good stats, man, but he did lose to a 15th seed, and that's where the issue becomes. Is like if you've watched any of the tournament, you know that St. Peter has been St. Peter's. All props to them; they've been, you know, on it. You know, so I don't know. That's why I don't try and like uh, let March affect you know how I feel about guys in a negative way, but in a positive way. Look, I'm guilty. Hey, you drop you drop 40 points in the Sweet 16, we might we have to talk about uh you going into the lottery or higher depending on where you're already at. That's just me, though. I
2: think. I think it's it's okay to reevaluate your thoughts uh, in terms of that. If there seems to be some sort of drastic progression in the ability, like for scoring, for example, and the ability to create shots. So if a player enters March Madness and is suddenly showing something uh, in their bag that they never had before, I think it's definitely worth taking into account. Um, because like we we do that um a lot of the time for guys in international leagues like josh giddy his progression throughout the season was really important to evaluating him where he started off uh missing almost all of his three pointers uh and could not shoot and throughout the season we saw the jumper come along even if it's not great now that progression is really important uh so i think it is something that needs to be applied more when looking into um the progression between regular season and March Madness. But a lot of the time, the kind of observations that we're seeing being made aren't based on progression. They're just based on a hot game, which isn't the same thing.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Or, I, or, I or in, Franz, in Franz Wagner's case, missing 1-3 at the end of a game caused up some people's opinions to change drastically last year.
0: Okay, now hold on. That's interesting. I don't, I don't really remember that. But he really was one three, and people like uh, lowered he, him.
1: Air, he he airballed a three uh, at the buzzer to when, and Michigan lost the game last year in the tournament. And off of that, and people aren't going to admit it, but people had that as their lasting impression. And he started falling down people's boards. I noticed right around that time. <laughs> It was a very strange yeah. overreaction to one shot. I mean, it was it was meme to death on social media, and I think in general, when guys have bad final games in college, it kind of just has that be the that's the lingering feeling around that prospect, even if people aren't deliberately thinking about lowering a guy. Sometimes that could just have like a lasting impression. It's the last time you saw the guy for the cy- draft cycle, and it just you know I think it can negatively influence people. And Franz Wagner's definitely. Saying, I very feel like that case without.
2: I feel like people can get really wrapped up in pointing out what that player can't do because when a player has a bad game, it's because there are clear limitations uh, on what they're doing. So for for Jaden Ivey in his final game, uh, I feel like people are going to think a lot about that uh, late mid-range pull-up air ball and really over-exaggerate, oh, he doesn't have a mid-range game. You know that he isn't necessarily a great in-between player. Uh, we've talked th- about this before before, in evaluation putting these um blanket ideas uh over prospects which causes them to over exaggerate certain areas of their games such as someone who's not a great shooter just going oh they can't shoot and really simplifying uh their evaluation of their player in that aspect
0: I mean, yeah, that's super interesting because, like, the Franz Wagner thing, just to think that, like, you know, at the end of the day, we talk about, like, oh, it's only one get bad game, but, like, if you're lowering a guy off of one bad shot, then I don't know, man. You you gotta, I mean, once again, it's like, you can't throw away an entire season of scouting over one bad shot. I don't, I don't, I mean, I get that it's the tournament, this is, this is where all the eyes are, These are like, the biggest college game that some of these guys will play by far, but that's just, that's crazy to me, man. I did not know that, so that's interesting to know.
2: Exactly, yeah. And if, if that's pointing out a limitation in the player's game, that's where it goes back to my original point of, then go back and look earlier in the season and see if those limitations are also there or this is just almost like a, an outlier instance. And, like, and whether it's actually a consistent limitation to the prospect.
1: And put it, put yourself in the shoes of the NBA GM. It, it, you might not think it's like a big deal to move a guy down two spots on your board over a shot that made you kind of have a sour taste in your mouth about the guy. You moved it on two spots, that means that your franchise doesn't end up with Franz Wagner, a rookie of the year candidate this year. Because in the lottery, that's enough of a move to, you know, ensure that your team never drafts them. I I mean, like it's it's a big deal, I think uh if you're a team Obviously, we're just people making boards on the internet, so it doesn't have that kind of implication for us. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's a big move to move a guy down two spots in the lottery in terms of value uh, over, you know, one game where
2: you weren't a huge fan. The real, the reality of it is that these teams are making multi-million dollar investments. So the stakes are a lot higher than, uh, say, us with our, with our spreadsheets out, you know? Look,
0: I want to get into our next topic You know, we've been talking about March Madness for a minute If you've watched Martin Madness, you probably caught some Memphis games They had a really good opening game You know, I think they won that game by, what, 20 or so points I want to say, I mean, it was a really impressive showing for Memphis You know, Memphis is a team Mainly highlighted by, you know, head coach Penny Hardway, I know there was some stuff uh, Today about him, you know, apparently He's lost control of the program, you know, that's going on But, I mean, they did have a good march For their standards, I mean, as an 8 seed, you win Your first game by 20 points, I mean, and they they Took Gonzaga to the wire. so I thought that was pretty impressive
1: I think I think you might have not caught the second half of that one. I'm <laughs> they were honest. up, they they were up twenty, and they lost the whole lead and nearly lost to Gonzaga. <laughs> no, to uh, Boise State. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My bad. All right. Look, I'm I admittedly there's so many games going on on the first day
0: of March Madness. I probably never watched that one, so I'm pleading ignorance. I haven't That's had time totally. to go watch it back. Um, look. You know, Penny Hardaway, Jalen Durant, those are like the big guys that, you know, get all the talking about Memphis. There's somebody a bit lower on that team that I want to talk about. Uh, I just want to say shout out to everyone who has ever watched, you know, high schoolers' mixtapes. You will, you will realize this guy by his name. That is none other than the next KD. Some would say in back in his high school days, Imani Bates. Look, Imani Bates was, is a 2023 draft class pro, draft class prospect. He's been hyped up. Well, what, since he was a freshman in high school, I want to say. I mean, it's been going on for a few years now. But, look, he he wasn't that good this year at Memphis, you know. There were some other guys in the 2023 class. I'm talking Victor Webiana. I'm talking Scoot Henderson out of the G League Ignite right now. You know, guys who have just been like, oh, those are super impressive. And then you're just watching Imani. And, like, I believe that Imani was dealing with some injury issues. I know he wasn't playing too well. Uh, Garrett, I'm going to call on you for this one. Where, right. where, where do we stand out, stand out with Imani? Cause I have a, uh, like, what are the, the next steps for him? And what's his long-term outlook? Cause like, I, I don't want to like focus too much. Cause he is a year younger than the college, like in the normal college freshman. I think that's correct. But like at the same time, yeah, I didn't expect this. You've been called the net kitty for years and in college you're getting benched. Like, I don't know. So where are you at? What do you think his long-term outlook looks like?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think Imani maybe came into this year, uh, with higher expectations than uh, for Memphis than what they ended up achieving the first half of the season where he played the most minutes. Um, when Memphis started playing well, it was while he wasn't playing. I don't necessarily think that's Imani's fault. I think the, game, the team in general was really discombobulated because they had COVID issues that left just, they never had the same guys on the court every game. They had injuries as well to key players that like, helped them win the NIT last year. Uh, They just had kind of this very strange season, and of course, Jalen Duran had to be incorporated into the offense after not being on the team last year, and Amani as well. I think that the big thing for me with Amani is uh, that he is still extremely skilled, and I'm still very much a fan of his, just not at the same level that uh, I think most people were coming into this year. Uh, I think he needs to reset expectations a little bit about how the college experience is going to go. You look at like B.J. Boston, for example, I think they had kind of comparably difficult years in their first year. Uh, you know, but B.J. Boston came in as like highly touted for his slashing, but he really couldn't get into the paint very easily with Kentucky without drawing a charge call, just the nature of how the college game is versus high school game. But, you know, he gets back to the NBA and he's looking good again. Um, efficiency is still not great, but definitely looking better than he did at Kentucky. I think Imani needs to look at the same thing and say, what can I do to excel in the college game if I'm going to stick around college for another year? I need to improve my handle first and foremost. I need to improve my hands. Uh, I I just felt like he was way too loose with the ball this year and when he was being touted as a point guard in the preseason by Penny Hardaway I just think that they need to reset that expectation in particular and he needs to work on his handle all offseason as well as his strength if he's going to be driving to the rim like he does just playing with more body control getting your body control down so that you can be more than just a jump shooter because and I say that not because he's just a jump shooter But because on a team where there are going to be other guys who can also attack off the bounce, if you're not as good as those guys, it's just the nature of the game that you're not going to be getting the same reps as them. You got to just short everything up and not expect to have the ball put in your hands, even if you're not going to do something good with it. And, you know, I didn't really think he had as disastrous of a season as people have made it out to be. If you look at the tape, I think that his passing in particular was pretty good whenever he had, you know, again, body control on the drive. He was a good passer. He was starting to show a good two-man game with with Jalen Duran before he uh, went down with injury. I just felt like because there were no other guys who could initiate, it was kind of hard for them to get into that set and be able to execute that. Um, And hopefully, you know, if he's playing in Memphis or otherwise, he's playing with another guy who can handle the ball. Uh, Because when he felt like he had to do everything, he didn't really do anything. So. I want
0: to talk about uh, more statistically. I'm going to actually going to be calling on both of you in a second here. You know, there's a lot of talk about what Imani will do next. I mean, I've heard there's been some rumors about possibly him going to the G League night. You know, we've seen, uh, you know, Kuminga do that, uh, Jalen Green last year, Jaden Hardy. I mean, Scoot Henderson. You know, all those guys. And then also, I have a I have a bit of an, an idea. You know, this one's a bit out there. Tim, you said you were not ready to discuss Imani, but I'm calling you on for something else. Listen, I'm going to say a few names, and you're going to tell me what they all have in common, all right? You ready? You know right where this is going, I hope. All right, Terrence Ferguson, Lanello Ball, RJ Hampton. This
2: is getting exciting. The NBL.
0: The NBL. I'm thinking, you know, for Imani, it's like you struggled in college maybe, you know, I think I'm I'm saying if I'm Imani, I'm going to the NBL. What, what are your thoughts on that? That's why I'm calling on you. The NBL expert, people. A,
2: yeah. I think that's a really difficult decision for him to make. I would personally advise him to stay in college and to not come to the NBL. The NBL is... It's different for everyone. Everyone has different experiences. Um, we saw with uh, Nikita, uh, the Russian prospect with uh, Tasmania. didn't He only got on the court for, for I think, six minutes across two games. And um, I'm not quite sure what the reason for that is. Maybe it was attitude related, we're not entirely sure. And then you see other players like Lamello who had um, got a lot of usage and was able to use that to build his draft stock and get to where he is. Uh, but some players just struggle to get on the court, and I would fear that maybe Amoni would also struggle to get playing time. Uh, someone like Jack McVeigh, who is stylistically pretty similar to Amoni Bates, was on Adelaide last year, and he ended up getting benched quite a bit for similar deficiencies to Amoni Bates. And uh, as a younger player, uh, younger players in the NBL, while well, some get a freer reign than others, uh, some do. Struggle to see at the court because, at, at the end of the day, it's a professional league with teams vying to win. And even even though the next stars um, do get a bit more um, freedom in terms of being able to mess up, uh, these are still teams trying to win and not necessarily putting the draft stock of the prospects above the team success. So, I, I, I would agree. advise he stays in college.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree with Tim, and on top of that I will say if he is staying in college, I I hope that he looks at B.J. Boston, like I mentioned before, as a case study of maybe how draft stock can plummet if teams can't see you in a basic role while you develop, or contributing in ways beyond scoring as a rookie, second-year player, etc. I think a lot of teams must have been, I, I don't know the personal circumstances of B.J. Boston beyond what's public, But he dropped all the way to the 50s with a top five, you know, ranking coming in out of high school. And Imani Bates coming with the same pedigree and, you know, his defense of potential is, it still exists. He, He could still be a good defender, but he wasn't for large portions of the year. You know, his passing was good, but... His handle was rough and you kind of like wonder if I give him the ball, is it going to be a turnover? I think just going to college with a coach, whether it's at Memphis or elsewhere, I don't know what his uh, thought process is, but somewhere where his like role is very controlled. He focuses on what he does best and he showcases that every night. And then you can talk about upside and showing upside because, you know, there's tons of high school tape of him doing crazy stuff. Teams have that tape. They know what the crazy stuff you can do is. Now it's time that you can do like the basics and like just play as a more controlled player and play as part of a team concept.
0: We're talking a lot about Imani Bates in college. I mean, you know, Tim was kind of like, hey, I said this in the same college. Garrett, you said the same – could you see him transferring away from Memphis? Is that in? Is that in the cards for you? You know, we haven't even touched on G League Ignite, but you know, if we think he should stay in college, would you? Would you transfer if you were Imani? I know there's a lot going on at Memphis. You know, Durant's probably leaving, and you know, there's there was some stuff today released about you know Penny Hardaway. So I don't know. Is a transfer was something that you think Imani should look into for his future or what?
1: Well, honestly, I think every player in college nowadays <laughs> should be asking himself this question at the end of every season with the transfer portal the way it is. But there's very, but there's a much smaller percentage of those guys that I would recommend that to that should actually transfer. Just you know, keeping your options open. I wouldn't transfer just to transfer. I mean, Penny Hardaway was trying to get Amani, uh, Bates looks that that would benefit him and make him look at his best. It just wasn't working out. Um, and you know, we could talk about the team problems in addition to Amani Bates forcing it, but the struggles with Memphis weren't just Amani. But they've also clearly ironed out some of those issues as the season has drawn on. So they're going to have some guys who depart, you know, during obviously DeAndre Williams. If you feel comfortable that the guys coming in next year at Memphis are going to allow you to uh, not have to play hero ball, then I s- probably would just stay and, and focus on not having your entire career in people for the last two years and just try and settle down and, and work on your game within the environment that you've chosen.
0: You know that, that, that's really a very fair answer. You know, I was honestly 100% I was expecting you to say, "Oh yeah, you he got a transfer." I, I thought that's where you were going to go with that. So I was actually curious. You know, get your opinion on that. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm wishing the best for Evonney. You know, I I don't watch the high school hoop mixtapes anymore. Those days are those scouting days are long over for me. You know, I would like to give a shout out to uh, that one guy. Oh gosh, he went to UNC seventh woods shout out to him one of the best hoop mixtapes ever from high school um anyways there's some more stuff i wanted to talk about look this is where we get to like the real core of our opinions you know we've talked about imani we've talked about march madness i'm putting us all on the spot right now and the first person i'm putting on the spot is you tim all right so you better be ready to answer this you are hired tomorrow as an nba gm and you get the first pick you ready who are yep. you who are you drafting with that first pick? I'm ready. Tell me.
2: Hello, he, I think he's he's my number one guy, and I know for a lot of people it's kind of been a situation of flip flopping between him and Chet. But uh for me it's it's been uh Bankiro the whole season and the, the flip flopping in terms of the top guys for me has been more in that two to five range.
0: Garrett, what about you?
2: Uh, I have kind of a 1A, 1B
1: situation going on, and that's uh, Paolo and, uh, and Jaden Ivy, who I don't think many have number one. I just finished talking about how a lot of people came in with fresh Ivy number one takes. I've been here for a little while. Um, I could go into that a little bit once we go over who everyone's got number one, but uh, yeah, 1A, 1B, and I would be happy with either one.
0: I want to go over who I would take at number one, and personally, that's going to be none other than Paolo. Me and, me and Tim were on the same train of thought. I think all three of us are. I know you mentioned Ivy Garrett, but look, it's Paolo for me by far. There's nobody in this class that is six foot ten, two hundred and fifty. I, I hate to say it, there is some things in. I, this might get me some hate. There is some LeBron James-esque things in his games. Nobody else in this class is doing that. With all due respect to the guys at the top, to Holmgren, to Ivy, and I don't know, Javari Smith. Those guys, I don't know, I think Paulo, his NBA role is just too good. I think he's a really dominant player, I think physically and both with his skills. And I just think he's going to get so much better as he matures and his game, you know, grows over time. But Garrett, I'm actually interested. I, number one, I want you to, I don't know, kind of sell me on that one. I'm ready. What's your pitch?
1: Yeah, I think he's just so perfect as a, a, a second star next to a primary at the next level. It's just such a perfect fit that I just think it's too difficult to pass up on. Uh, you know, a lot of teams that draft number one are looking for their primary, but I think Ivy just works so well next to a ball-dominant ball, do- ball dominant player. Uh, he he At Purdue, you know, he's the best point guard on the roster, so he's going to have the ball in his hands at all times, and also he's one of the guys who's trying to get the ball to the bigs down low, like in typical Big Ten style. But at the next level, I think when he's playing with other guys who are capable ball handlers, Uh, coaches are going to have a lot of fun, you know, just trying to get him into kind of off ball cuts, having him constantly running around the court. Uh, he's obviously an insane athlete. I think those cuts can get really creative where like he goes to the basket, uh, off ball and just kind of constantly runs baseline. He can, he can also run jab outside and and go out for catch and shoot threes. You know, while there are questions about his shooting, I personally trust his catch and shoot, uh, catch and shoot shooting as much as any other part of his game. Uh, And I think his creation is going to look a lot better with NBA spacing. Uh, I I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, his stock started, like, first rose when he wasn't playing a Big Ten competition with more open offenses and, uh, you know, less packed defenses. And as he got into Big Ten play with, uh, you know, where guys just kind of stand in the lane the whole game, uh, he started to struggle with his finishing a little bit. I don't think it's any coincidence. And I think we'll see some of that early season stuff again in the NBA uh, right away where he has more free reign to cut, uh, cut to the basket on ball or off ball and just show his athleticism and beat guys with ease. And, uh, I think his passing is going to look a lot better since it's so dependent on driving and kicking, uh, with more space. I think that driving kick will look so much more efficient and it will look less like he's threading needles, which right now he's kind of forced to do. Um, and I think the other thing is, like, he's just had just crazy rapid skill development this year uh, from last year. I mean, we all, for anyone who watched him last year, he was hyper inefficient. Uh, he, he he took a lot of bad shots that just didn't make a lot of sense. And he just, in general, looked really uncomfortable. And in year two, I mean, his processing is better. His shot is more cleaned up. His body control is way better. Uh, the passing has been obviously, like, the biggest leap. And I just think that development in one year is insane and almost outlier in a good way not like outlier where you expect it to regress but outlier in the sense that he might just be such a good learner um and he has such a great athletic baseline anyway that when he improves it's just dramatic increases because of the athleticism because of the natural ability and i just want to bet on a guy like that Look. an interesting question
2: for you uh, about about ivy so I was listening to the Upside Swings podcast and their breakdown on Ivy, and one thing they were discussing is his role projection, and they were very much of the opinion that he's an off-guard, and I could agree to that. I think you guys could agree to it as well. And uh, they were talking about the ideal backcourt mate for uh, Jaden Ivy, and they discussed a player that would be um, a good shooter to kind of compensate for Uh, in a way, but also a good backcourt defender. Uh, They sounded pretty low on Ivy's uh, general defense. Um, Do you think uh, that plays any role into projecting uh, where you would take or rank Jaden Ivy? Like, What sort of players you have to surround him with at all? Well, I think there's a uh, difference between what you have to surround him with and
1: what he's ideally next to. Um, you know, obviously if you're next to a guy who shoots 40% from three, that's a great, um, backcourt mate, just inherently, as long as they can do the basics of of everything else. You know, if he's next to like a Darius Garland, for example, that's outstanding because not only can, uh, he hit Garland for threes, but Garland can hit him on cuts and it's just going to look great. You know, Colin Sexton has really benefited from playing next to Garland, for example. Um, but I don't think that he has to play next to a guy like that. I mean, obviously, you want like I mentioned before, I think he is a secondary. And a primary guy is going to have primary ball handling. But I don't know that he necessarily has to have a star guard running mate. Um, for me, I'm just looking at the list of guys. I mean, because of the way that my brain is geared towards the draft and thinking about the teams that are picking high, I obviously have thought about Kate Cunningham as a, a running mate. Um very contrasting styles of play and i think that on top of that kate cunningham is going to be able to find great looks for ivy that uh some of the other wings in the league can't do uh I'm curious who you guys have as kind of ideas of where he should fall
0: i wouldn't mind seeing him on the hawks a uh, bit of a you know a bit of a stretch but you know i'm just, I'm just saying i would love jade and ivy next to trey just want to get that out there you know <laughs>
1: It's the lottery. It could happen. <laughs> hey, I mean, look,
0: up. hey, we, we bump up from that, you know, late lottery spot, picking 14th to one. Hey, I don't know, man. We, I, I would like to see it. Uh, Tim, I want to ask you this. You know, uh, I know Garrett brought up, you know, he has Palo, like 1A, Gen Ivy, 1B. Is there anybody else that you would consider with one, or are you just like, all right, it's, it's Palo, and then that's who I want at one, and then you know everybody else. I mean, teams do have needs, but, I mean, if you're drafting at the top of the lottery – Usually, you're drafting for the best player available, and it, I mean, for you, that seems to be Paulo Bancaro, But like, is there anybody else that you would consider at one heavily?
2: Yeah, it's pretty firmly bank-hero. Uh I have entertained the idea of Morgan and Ivy, but I, I think I think it's pretty firmly Bancero for me. Um, in the big boards I've posted. Kind of put them in a tier of his uh, own. That's not representative of. Years that can be held across several draft classes, but more just within this class itself. Um, And I feel like Bankera has separated himself uh, from the following top prospects
0: yeah i was just curious about that because you know i I, for me personally it's it's paulo and then the field like if i get that number one pick i don't i mean i i'm gonna look at our roster once i'm gonna go all right we're gonna make this work somehow like we if we can make this work somehow i just think paulo is that good of a player and that's one of the things that like really excites me about him um but i want to ask you guys this how would you guys feel about you know your owner is like hey we got to talk about this one Chet Holmgren, you know, that guy is, like, seven feet tall. He plays defense. His stats are amazing. He can dribble. Chet at number one. How? I mean, that's something that – uh me, me and Garrett, we personally did a podcast uh, a couple of months ago where we were talking about, like, possible number one pig candidates. We didn't even mention Chet. So I, there was somebody who asked me about that the other day. They wanted me and Garrett to talk about it. But you now since all three of us are here, Chet at number one, how do you guys feel about that?
2: I don't hate it. It's not my personal preference, uh, but I can understand it. And there are specific teams who would really – benefit from that and be more of an ideal fit for chet so i can understand that uh an example if if sacramento jumps up i do think holmgren is a better fit than polo banquero uh next to sabonis uh so yeah it it can be very team dependent and even if i do have banquero ranked like number one um i can understand the logic behind maybe going for someone like holmgren
1: yeah, like Houston, for example, you've just in the last few drafts and through trades acquired a lot of guys who are score first mentality guys, and your defense is probably going to look a little bit rough if you draft a guy who can't, if you think Jaden Ivey, for example, I'm not as low as Jaden Ivey's defense, but let's say you're lower on his defense. Are you really going to like benefit from adding him to the roster at the same level as Chet if you've already got Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. in your rotation and intend to like stick with them long term? Like if that's, if you have those guys there, if you add Jaden Ivey, it's like an incremental increase because of you already having talent on the roster of those positions. But down low, you don't have a lot of defense. Hopefully Garuba plays a little bit more next year. And uh, Chet would slide in nicely, I think, next to like a Shengun.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think uh, uh, teams will have to consider, hey, like, I mean, you know, hey, Especially Houston, I think that's a really interesting one for Chet, just because, like, you know, you talked about the Garrett. Look, that team is going to need some help on defense. With the with the utmost respect for the Rockets, I really like their uh, core. seem to the building. I'm a, I'm a big Jalen Green guy, but that team is uh They're going to need some defense. I'm a. I consider myself to be somewhat of an expert about the NBA teams and defense after watching the Hawks the past few years. So, uh, there's my advice. You know, if anybody from the Houston Rockets is listening to the podcast, there's my advice. Um, yeah, I mean, look. I 100% get where you're going. But if I'm Houston, I'm like, now, hold on. It's like, for me, it's like, I I consider Paolo to be so good. I'm like, we can make this work somehow. That's the thing that, like, keeps me from it. Like, if, I don't know, if I was any of the 30 teams and I got that first pick, you know, I I think I'm taking Paolo every time. Like, there can be many things for, oh, how does he fit? How does he improve us? But, like, for other guys, I mean, it's just like, it's clear cut for me. I know QK, I mean, Tim, you mentioned this. Look. He separated himself. It happened. It's it, it. continues to happen. I don't know. He's just he's a tier above everyone for me, and I think that warrants you know, disregarding you know how does he fit and just taking you know hey you're we I think you're that guy. Let's take you.
2: Thing is, the way I view him being a tier above is the gap that that tier uh, between the tiers isn't necessarily large. It's just know that I would take. Um, Bankira number one and I'm not questioning whether I would take Holmgren number one it's more of a case of it's just this slight gap between them where I've kind of figured it out but Holmgren isn't necessarily significantly worse as a prospect It that makes any sense
1: yeah and also I would say when I was talking about Chet Houston, I would say that that would be a pick where I go okay that makes perfect sense I'm not gonna like knock them for that but I would still probably, if I had number one, take Paulo for Houston. Uh, particularly like when you know team contacts change very quickly, especially when you're a rebuilding team. Who knows if Christian Wood will even be on the roster next year, considering that everyone thought he was going to be moved at the deadline. So, you know, team contacts change quickly and sometimes just having the best talent in the draft on your roster is the best way to go when you're unsure of how things are fitting together just yet.
0: Look i know we've talked about a lot today you know we're about uh, about 52 minutes into the podcast recording so look guys i'm uh i'm gonna let's let's start running wrap things up but i do want to offer you both the floor you know we've talked about a uh, many topics today i just want to offer you both the floor right now if there's anything that you wanted to say that you wanted to get out there now is the time for you know i'm giving you the floor to you know just let it out if you had something that uh we, didn't, we weren't able to get to hey this is your opportunity
1: Well, uh Tim, do you wanna talk MBL at all? Okay, I did just finish binging all the games um, and finishing for the year. We can yeah, cover yeah, that. Yeah, let's next talk, talk about
2: the MBL for a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Tim, maybe you wanna talk about your MBL fandom and and how much yeah, you watch so
2: Breakers this year? Fortunately, uh I've been a breakers fan for the past few years. So it's 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 been a rough past few years and I'm gonna blame uh the lack of team success on uh, uh my happiness at the moment but um yeah i think the nbl is an incredibly fun league uh it's hyper competitive uh due to the limited amount of teams and the the constant rise of uh not only um the talent of australian basketball uh, but the kind of guys that are coming over as imports uh, and then the inclusion of uh, the Next Stars League, uh, or not Next Stars League, but the Next Stars program, uh, bringing a lot of these uh, young players um, into the NBL as a draft fan. That's just awesome. Like When I, when I first heard that guys like Terrence Ferguson and uh, Brian Bowen were coming over, uh, it got me excited. And now that we've had names such as Lamelo Ball and then um, Josh Giddy also coming in through the NBL, uh, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, to watch as a fan, but also enjoy as um, a bit of a draft nerd. Who, who do you think the best player in the NBL this year that could get drafted is?
1: Player that could is get it, drafted. It, it's, it's I I assume it's either Hugo Basson
2: or uh, Usman Jang. Uh, yeah like yeah de- definitely Hugo Basson. Uh, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I've been borderline irrational about that. I've cool I've cooled down a little. I I've I've been. Setting my board trying to figure things out and he's kind of more in the 15 to 20 range which is still quite a bit higher than others but i think hugo Busson is very comfortably the best draftable player in the nbl what about you uh i would be the same
1: i mean also you gave me the the suggestion to watch some of his play before he was at the breakers and when he was playing more point guard role and even within some of the breakers games i've seen just kind of these flashes of great passing and kind of rethought maybe what my perception of him was at the beginning of the year when he was basically just a volume scorer, it felt like. Um, yeah. You know, you look at Usman Jang, uh, I watched early NBL games and just was like, I'm not going to watch this right now, I'm gonna come back to it. And hopefully he'll be better. And, and right now he's getting a, he's been getting a lot of run, his guys have been hurt, and uh, he is a lot better. I, I don't think that I'm resetting to preseason expectations or anything, but he's firmly draftable for me this year and i think he should enter uh, as a guy who gets
2: stashed yeah for sure uh for basson in terms of team context i didn't like the fit on the breakers with the way that they constructed the roster around him uh especially at the start of the season where we already had william mcdowell white who has had uh, he's improved a lot as a jump shooter but especially um you know, at, at points during this season or and last season Uh, he wasn't a great shooter for a point guard and his primary role was to, uh, you know, pass the ball. There wasn't a lot happening outside of that in rebounding uh, for him. Then we also had Jeremiah Martin, who uh, ended up leaving the team. But it was when the breakers were running these lineups of like Jeremiah Martin and uh, William McDowell White and then Hugo Vasson at the three. And then uh, we had Yanni Wetzel in the middle, who I've compared to like a, a Drew Timmy type in the nbl he's been hyper productive but i i think that's because he fits the the, what what the nbl uh, caters towards in terms of players very well kind of like how i don't think someone like drew timmy will necessarily translate well to the to the nba yanni wetzel same deal but uh you, you have these lineups of a bunch of guys who don't shoot the ball well and are all demanding the ball in their hands and then hugo has been pretty much just told look you're going to run around, you're going to sit in the corner, you're going to shoot threes. Uh and then you see when he gets the ball, sometimes he tries to give it a bit of, a bit of flair and it just doesn't work out. But there are the, there are these moments uh where he really excels in being able to play into this role. I think he's excellent at catching, ripping and just attacking closeouts, putting pressure on the rim even if the numbers aren't there uh, in terms of rim percentage. He's a much better finisher than what that shows. And being able to just run through the motion of getting to the rim, and, um, you know, being able to finish with the left and uh, have the body control uh, to create downhill is all really exciting to me. And it's kind of why I have him in that 15 to 20 range, is that I'm really confident in how he'll be able to uh, fit into the NBA and contribute outside of, uh, you know, Late, late shot clock creation or catch and shoot threes. I feel like there's a bit more there and especially with his play in France in terms of uh, being able to create the pick and roll. There's a lot of that playmaking which wasn't being able to be uh, shown with New Zealand due to the way our roster is constructed and I think all of that needs to be taken into consideration.
1: He's also got just incredible bravery. <laughs> the guys that he's winning, he'll, he'll just take anyone off the dribble. I mean I saw him with yeah. know, Kai Soto just like standing in the paint. He just goes right at him in the paint, puts his body into Kai Soto and finishes for the and pre-season. one. And, like, how many guys are really going to try this?
2: In the preseason, there's a clip of him uh, posterizing Joshi. So <laughs> yeah, I remember that. yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he's pretty fearless and um, kind of fun to watch when he's like that. He dropped 17 points in the third quarter uh, against Perth in what was the game of the year. And uh, the commentators were just going nuts. He, 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 Hugo Passant just has balls. Like, he, he just goes at it. And when he heats up, it's uh, a lot of fun to watch.
0: All right. Is that uh? I I was kind of quiet there. I don't. I'm gonna be the first to say it. I don't watch much NBL. I'm gonna keep real. I've seen what I've needed to, and I consider that to be enough. So I was just gonna you know let you guys have that. You know, you guys, you guys can be the experts in the NBL. I'm sorry. I'm not. I don't know that that ain't for me. Look, I respect the league. I was I was advocating for you, Monty Bates, to go over there. So I don't want to hear anything about how I uh about how I'm a hater or anything. But yeah, um, about an hour into the podcast, I think uh, you guys ready to start wrapping things up here.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah
0: all right well that is going to do it for episode one of the draft class dropouts podcast uh i'm going to give tim and garrett the the time to you know shout out their twitter shout out anything they want to but i do want to say before that is that uh do check the description of this episode wherever you're listening to at uh i the podcast is on all platforms so just check the description make sure you rate it five stars (laughs) thank you um And yeah, and there'll be tons of links to our Twitter's, uh, our account, the the Twitter's podcast, where you'll stay updated about episodes and stuff, and other helpful links like to our YouTube and stuff. So Garrett, Tim, this is your time, your floor. Uh, You can talk about anything you want to, you know, shout out, you know, anything you want to. There you go.
1: Yeah, uh, this is Garrett, and I'm on Twitter at at HalfAwakeTakes. This is our first podcast together, obviously, as we said, and for me, I'm new to the podcast space. Been on a few episodes. Jackson added an episode a while back on Hawks Talks, but other than that, you know, mm. learning this this platform and looking forward to getting better and better every episode. So please stay tuned.
2: Yeah, and uh, on Twitter, I'm QK Hoops, and uh, what I'm really looking forward to with this podcast is. Uh, Stepping away from sort of the the main conversations that we usually have on Twitter and being able to discuss uh, the more theoretical and philosophical nuances of uh, scouting and evaluating prospects, so I'm really excited with some of the topics we've got planned out in upcoming episodes
0: well, well thank you guys for that as I, like QK said, hey. Stay tuned for future episodes. We'll be sure to keep you updated. Be sure to check out the description. Rate the podcast five stars. And, yeah, thanks for listening to episode one of the Draft Class Dropouts podcast. We'll be back for episode two soon. I hope you have a good rest of your weekend and a good start to your week. Goodbye.